This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. I will define scientists as people that produce knowledge. They try to see beyond what we assume is the reality that we're exposed to. That's what the scientist does. It pushes knowledge by visiting assumptions and biases and making sure that those assumptions and biases don't blind us to the reality, to the truth. Doctor, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. Well, first of all, I want you to tell me a story. Tell me your story. I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. I grew up in what I consider as a child a tropical paradise. Like I grew up, you know, watching ants self-organize and go into their ant holes and hunt and wondering like, how does that happen? Or looking at sea turtles when they come and lay their eggs and the baby turtles hatch out and then they go into the ocean wondering how does that happen? And that curiosity uh, led me to where I am today, which is I'm, I'm a scientist here at Yale University, where we're conducting this interview. And I study how, essentially, what can be described as how memories form. So when you think about uh, the, I don't know, the, the image of your parents or your first kiss, like that very intimate memories that make us who we are, what are they? Like how, you know, how, can our, how is our brain able to, to recall those, those moments with the emotions and everything, how does that happen? And uh, I'm not the only person interested in that question, by the way. There are many scientists for, for a long time have been interested in that question. But and from that work, we know, from the work of those many people, we know that the nervous system, the brain is very important for that, and that the brain is made out of cells called neurons, and that the neurons talk to each other through connections we call synapses. The names are not important, but they're these connections that are made very precisely between cells. And what I do is I study how those connections are made. So how do cells find each other and connect each other so that you and I can have this conversation? And you know, what, what are just sound waves that my mouth are making? They can get transformed into ideas and thoughts and, you know, and our brains all of a sudden are communicating. So that's, that's what I do. At roughly what age did you say to yourself, I think maybe I want to dedicate my life to science? You know, Dan, I will actually argue that we are all born scientists. So I have four little kids, <laughs> and I've been watching them and their classmates, and I've, I've seen my kids like, decipher language and learn about the environment, and I will say that those interests that they have, that innate curiosity that all human beings share, that, that's what makes scientists scientists. In my case, I mean, I was one of those fastidious kids that was always asking questions in class. And so in my case, I continue to ask questions, and that's what I do today. But I will argue that we're, we all have that scientific instinct. We all have that scientific instinct. And you said earlier, in a way, everybody's born a scientist. Mm -hmm. Then why is it that so many people, including myself in my younger years, have a fear of science mm -hmm. and sees science and sciences as a world apart. Mm -hmm. Why is that? I include myself there too. I love science. I, I couldn't tell you that when I was a child because I hated science class. And I think the, the reason was because the way we teach science. We teach science 
like the questions are answered. So you come into the classroom and somebody's standing in front of you telling you these are the answers to the questions. Here, here's the question, here's the answer. Here's the question, here's the answer. And that's not how science works. In science, you always end up asking a question, not answering a question. You know, when I get students in the lab, like students that are academically very bright, I warn them that the skills that made them academically bright are not gonna be the skills that are gonna help them as scientists. But like if you're a chemistry professor, you have a chemistry problem set, you give it to the students, and there's a number called Avogadro's number that you use in the equation, and you have to memorize that number. If you're a student, you memorize Avogadro's number, and you use it in the equation to get the right answer. If you're a scientist, you are Avogadro. You have to derive that number. And if you're not Avogadro, you have to figure out if Avogadro was wrong. You have to question authority. You have to question the knowledge that is out there. And you have to use the existing knowledge as a first step towards entering this, this wonderful space of the unknown where, you know, where you're guided by imagination and by, by search. A question. Mm -hmm. True or untrue, that if you're not particularly good at mathematics, you're not going to be good at science. I think the deeper question is why are you not good in mathematics? Because mathematics is beautiful. So how were you taught mathematics? This value of being good or not being good at, at something, it's, it's more nuanced than how you uh, create your identity when you're first exposed to those things. I'll give you an example. I, I'm the father of triplets. And when I look at my three daughters kind of navigate the world, I realized that many times they navigated in the context of each other. So they derive identity by comparing with their sisters. So if I like the color green, then you're gonna like the color violet. Uh, that's what differentiates us. So when we're in a classroom, we might identify a person, the first person that gets the first set of problems right or guesses the teacher's answer right or whatever, that is the good person in math. And then I'm gonna self-identify as a person that is not good in math. And I think if you ask many scientists, they were not good in these disciplines. But then later they, were, they realized that the reason they were not good is because what was asked of them at the time were qualities that are not necessarily as important in science, like memorization or, uh, or, or speed, like being able to f like answer a lot of questions very fast, like in math. There are other things that make you a good scientist. And I will say that all of us, when I say that all of us are born scientists, it's not that all of us should be scientists as professionals, but all of us can appreciate what curiosity is. The same way that not all of us are gonna be artists, but all of us can go to a museum of art and appreciate you know, beauty and things like that. What is the importance of science today? Science is what allows you to learn what you don't know. And there's a lot we don't know. And this is very fundamental. If you take like biology, I'm a biologist. If you take biology, the study of life, that's what biology means. I mean, what is life? Like we all know what, we all know when something is alive and when something is not alive. But how, I don't think there's a living scientist that can really tell you, you know, what is the difference? What is the difference between an organism when it's alive and the like the millisecond after it lost life. What did it lose? And no, no scientist can recapitulate that. We don't understand it. And that, you know, that is, that is what we're defining as the study, right? We're studying life, but we cannot define what life. So there are all these fundamental questions. I guess that's, that would be, that's my message to students when I tell them and to everyone actually. It's like, you know, we don't understand a lot.
How do we encourage scientific exploration in our children? You're a father of what, four? Yeah. Including three girls who are triplets. Yeah. But how do you encourage scientific exploration? By not getting in the way. I think kids are naturally curious. And that's what scientific exploration is. I'm a human being like any other parent, so I also get tired, and I get tired of questions now, <laughs> you know, as an adult. But when my kids are asking questions and I don't know the answer, I tell them, look, I, I don't know the answer. I'll try to find out the answer. And if I can't find out the answer, I tell them, you know, maybe no one knows the answer. Maybe you're the person that will figure out the answer to this question. And I think that's important for kids to hear. For many people, science seems unapproachable, and scientists seem like I don't like too strong to say a separate species. Right. We, we are weird, yeah. How do we cut through that? Well, we're all weird. Yeah, no, I'm joking. <laughs> no the, I, I think uh, part of why do people see it that way? I saw it that way. I mean, I look back on my first experience uh, going to a lab, and it was so intimidating. You know, it looks so foreign. Like, you have all these machines. You're worried you're going to break them. It has to be sterile. Like, you know, there are all these rules, and you just feel like out of place. And I empathize with that. When I was growing up in Puerto Rico as a kid, I was telling you I love science, but science felt very uh, decontextualized for me. And the reason it felt that way is because, I'll give you a few concrete examples. We will get textbooks. Many textbooks were printed here in the Northeast. And uh, they will have these beautiful examples about seed dispersal. I still remember these, these beautiful examples about seed dispersal. And they will talk about uh, maple trees which is a beautiful example of seed dispersal. It forms these helicopter-shaped seeds that you know, blow, and everyone recognizes them if you live in the Northeast. But if you lived in a tropical island, you've never seen a maple tree. So to me, I mean, they might as well have been talking about, I don't know, like a fictitious thing. And, and look, I think examples from elsewhere are important because science is universal. But it's also important that science is contextualized. So I think there are beautiful examples in the tropics of seed dispersal. And I'll give you another example. Like when I was um, learning, like my first lessons in physics as a kid, right? They had these cool pictures of these kids. They were usually white kids with a balloon and, and they had rubbed a balloon in their hair and their hair was standing up. And look, Dan, if you've grown up in Puerto Rico, you don't need a balloon for your hair to stand up. It's 90% humidity, you know? <laughs> so you're standing up all the time. So that, I mean, those examples, I will look at that and I will say, wow, science is so cool, but it's, it's irrelevant to me. I mean, those are dramatic examples from my context, but I think everyone could come up with examples like that from their context of things that they're just like, they, it feels irrelevant or, or out of reach. I think the way to mitigate that is to contextualize science, to explain to people why science is relevant to them. So 10 years ago, I, I uh, created a web page, really. It was a very simple web page because I didn't know where the Puerto Rican scientists were. There were so few, I didn't know where they were. And I created a web page so that they could self-identify. It was like uh, my bad signal to this guy being like, where are we? So we asked the scientists, can you contextualize to a kid in Puerto Rico, to yourself when you were a kid, why what you're doing is important? And scientists started writing these essays. Some of them I would not have been able to write. There was this, this beautiful essay from a geologist that said, look, Puerto Rico was born in the Pacific, in the Pacific Ocean. And then he explained that there's a part in Puerto Rico called Cabo Rojo, it means Red Cape. And it's called Red Cape because it has these hills that are kind of red, the sediments are red. And he explains, you know, those hills, the sediments are red because they have this fossilized exoskeleton of these microorganisms 
that have never existed in the Atlantic. They're from the Pacific. So all of a sudden, you have teachers in classrooms using that uh, to explain this concept of Pangea, this concept of, of the fact that the world is not the way it is today. It was not that way. It, it had, you know, there are tectonic plates, and they move around, and that's why you have earthquakes. And there are many ways of explaining that concept. But when somebody points, points at a hill and tells you that hill was born in the Pacific, you remember that. And you that, bet. And you have a lot of questions. And you have a lot of questions. Interesting. Well, let's change the subject and talk about your research, what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. I do want to quote from your lab page, so Quote, the human brain consists of 100 billion neurons and over 100 trillion synaptic connections. There are more neurons in a single brain than stars in the Milky Way. Now that touches off a lot of sunbursts of thought in my mind. But let's start with consider my mind blown. How does all this work? Every time a child is born, they have hundreds of billions of neurons. I tell these students that when they look at the sky, uh, they see the Milky Way, that to think that that is just but a reflection of the potential of all the, all the cells that they have, all the neurons that they have, all the connections that they have in their brain. And what blows my mind is the fact that all of these neurons have to connect to each other in a way that makes sense. So imagine that you have the most important theater production in your life, and you have a hundred billion characters, and they all have to play their part precisely, otherwise the theater production is gonna be a disaster, and there's no rehearsal. So how, how does that work? I mean, there's, there's no rehearsing here. It has to happen, otherwise, the, otherwise you're gonna end up with neurodevelopmental diseases, with problems that we recognize as cognitive problems from development. So what my lab does to try to understand that question is, and this is the part where, where I confuse everybody. <laughs> so we don't look at the human brain. We actually look at a worm. It's called a nematode. It's a tiny worm that's called C. elegans. And the reason that we can look at a worm and learn about the brain is because there's this fundamental concept in biology, in nature for that matter, which is that when nature finds an answer to a problem, it uses it over and over again. So our brains are product of evolution. And the, the fundamental circuits that power our brain, they're of course different from a brain of a worm, but the fundamental circuits that power our brain are similar to the fundamental, the fundamental pieces that power the brain of, of a worm. So by analogy, it would be like saying, look, an Apple watch is gonna be different from a supercomputer. But if you wanna understand how circuits work, how they have to be precisely connected, what are the instructions, how they store information, you can gain a lot of knowledge from a simple circuit and then extend that to like the supercomputer. So this is how a typical lab looks like. You know, when you're working with systems like this, the simpler the better. You know, I'm still trying to get my head around the whole concept that you can study something as small as a worm's brain. Right. So we use these microscopes here just to be able to pick the animals and move them around, but we cannot really see their brains using these microscopes. We need other microscopes to be able to look at other brains. Now, the worms that we're putting here, we train them to like a temperature or another. So 
in a worm that likes a given temperature, that remembers that temperature, what is that memory? What changed in its brain? There's a temperature gradient here that goes between 15 degrees to 25 degrees. So animals that learn to like 15 degrees, what changed in their brain that allows them to now move to that preferred temperature? It's how do you create a memory? How does that animal remember something like a temperature? It occurs to me that there will be people watching this interview some of them people in very powerful positions, political and otherwise, who will say, ah, you see, this is exactly what's wrong with science, particularly the study of science in this country. Here is this very nice man, obviously an intelligent gentleman in Puerto Rico, but he's spending his time and spending a lot of money studying, God help me, the brains of worms. <laughs> Why? Exactly. Why? Why? And, and I will add to that, you know, we have received millions of dollars to study that worm. Why? Is that a waste of money? Why didn't we spend that on studying autism or studying? So, so to, to answer that question, I'll, give you, I'll tell you a story. There was a scientist that ended up donating a building, actually. He made a lot of money, ended up donating a building not far away from where we are. His name is Er Boyer. And he was studying how bacteria have sex. You might ask, why? Well, who wants to know how bacteria have sex? And he ended up making the most important discoveries in diabetes, I will say. So what this guy did was that in the process of discovering how bacteria exchange genetic information, he identified a set of instructions of how bacteria mix and match genetic information. Once he understood that process, he was able to take a human gene and trick the bacteria into thinking that it was its own gene and the bacteria then produced insulin. That was the birth of the biotechnology industry. It's a $430 billion industry today. And the company that he set up, which is in South San Francisco now, called Genentech, emerged from these type of discoveries. But note that he didn't start by saying, I'm gonna make insulin. He started by saying, how do bacteria have sex? Now, I can give you 10 examples like that. And that's, how, that's essentially how science works, because the way that science works is that we have to understand in order to apply. You cannot apply something that you don't understand. If there's a policymaker from the US listening to this, I'd like to quote uh, one of the founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, who, when asked why he was uh, flying a kite trying to study electricity, what use did it have? He answered, what use does a baby have? So you need, to, you, need, like, you need to have those seeds of knowledge to be able to apply them. You do or do not think that we're in a particularly perilous moment for the kind of future that you, you consider to be ideal as opposed to what's happened with those other societies, other countries, other civilizations, as they go in decline as the interest in science is not furthered from the top, from the leadership. I mean, I find the current moment troubling. In, in, in a number of ways, in how scientific facts are treated by policymakers. You know, there, uh, right now as we have this conversation, there are all this uh, discussion about uh, gun control, and there's very little discussion about the research that has been done on epidemiology, on the fact that research at places like the CDC have been limited by political activism, by organizations like the NRA, but, so so there's, a, there's a boxing out of facts and science at, at different spheres to push for policies that are, not, uh, that are not based on science. I take your point about the dangers of, in your phrase, boxing out 
science. Right. Well, I don't think we can have this conversation and not talk about the terrible recent hurricane, what it has done to Puerto Rico. Two hurricanes, two devastating hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico one after the other, first Irma and then Maria. And it has been a uh, devastating, devastating uh, series of events that took an already weak infrastructure and, and pushed, it, pushed it to the limit. Some years ago, you founded the organization CNCR Puerto Rico. That, as I understand it, combines your passion for science with your ties to your, your home. What inspired this idea and, and how has its mission grown? I wanted to take a community that I realized was geographically dispersed. All these Puerto Rican scientists, many of them have had to leave Puerto Rico and uh, come to the U.S. And also when I think of Puerto Rican scientists, I was thinking about just people interested in science and in Puerto Rico, you know, regardless of where they come from. I'd hear about their stories, their narratives of, of doing science, but in a, place, in a place like Puerto Rico and all of these other scientists that are in other parts of the world that are doing science, but they're emotionally attached to this place that we call Puerto Rico, this tiny archipelago in the Caribbean. And the reason I wanted to do that was because in part I wanted to uh, give them visibility and to change the narrative. In the news here, we receive uh, information on a very important narrative of what's happening, having to do with destruction and helplessness, and that, that's very real, and it's, a, it's an important narrative. But it's one narrative out of many. There are many other stories. There are stories of self-determination, of resilience, of discovery, of imagination. And I visited Puerto Rico during in, in December to visit my family, and I was asked to give a talk at the University of Puerto Rico. And, you know, the University of Puerto Rico, like most universities, are closed during the holiday season. But they have decided to open because they have missed so many classes because of the hurricane. My talk was scheduled for December 26th. This is the day after Christmas, right? And I was thinking, I mean, like, the holidays in Puerto Rico are a huge deal. That's where you see your family. And, and I was thinking, nobody's going to be there. And I walked into a lecture hall where there were, like, over 100 students, like super eager, full of questions, like their brains running, you know, at a million miles an hour. And, and all I could think about, I mean, besides being incredibly stimulated by their questions and, and their passion, all I could think about was that at least half of them didn't have any power, right? Just based on these statistics, I didn't ask them, but at least half of them didn't have any power at any point. I want to make sure those stories are also told because because they're also important. Indeed they are. Doctor, thank you. Thank you. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Lasker Foundation.